Welcome back to Thriving in Business and Life. This is Will Wilkinson. And this is Christopher Harding. And we're going to hop, Will, from the topic we covered last week, which was the genius of inclusion and how to leverage people's abilities into something that's directly related, and that is uh, a process we call quantum responsibility. Term that I love. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we want to we cover that because, as you know, uh, we often encounter people, and, and it can happen to us as well, where we get confused about what is responsibility and right. what is accountability? And yeah, well, we were going to define that a little more today, and it's uh, it's uh, not semantics. It's significant what these differences are. Yeah, so the, the vital difference, we say, between responsibility and accountability is that responsibility really is a mindset. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're tapping into the work of uh, Dr. William Guillory, who we've, we've kind of utilized his process for quite some time in coaching and so on, that the idea being that if I walk around seeing myself as responsible for the choices I make and the consequences those choices create... How I show up in life is very different than if I see myself as not connected, you know, to that to that responsibility. Well, absolutely, it is a mindset which takes the uh, negotiating out of the picture. <laughs> say it's, now, to, uh, it's, it's, it's tell about, me more about that. Well, it's not about figuring out how responsible I am, <laughs> how responsible you are, how we're divvying it up. It's much simpler, and as as we say, it's more the thriving way to live and work to just assume responsibility. I am responsible. Right. Yeah, I'm responsible for how I show up, for my role, etc. And, you know, uh, in in our book, uh, Thriving in Business and Life, we we have a quote by Dr. Milton Erickson uh, where he talks about that uh, many people walk around in what he calls a trance of disempowerment. And since he was the father of hypnotherapy, he knew a fair bit about uh, trance induction. <laughs> I've heard some amazing stories about work uh, by skilled therapists who were able, sometimes using very unusual methods, to jolt people out of their trance. And they all agree that, you know, regardless of the techniques you use, it is kind of like waking up. Well, and, and you think about it. We've talked about it before that we all generate stories about who we are in a particular situation, who we are in life. And so the, the, the real question is, um, you know, since we're making up stories all the time anyway, what we're suggesting is that we create a story about our empowerment, about mm-hmm. our responsibility, and that if we're going to be in a trance, it might as well be a trance of empowerment rather than <laughs> disempowerment. Be in an empowered trance. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's levels. It's not like we're in a trance and suddenly we're out of it. Right. I think any of us who really start paying attention to this discover, probably to our surprise, that you know waking up isn't a one-time deal. You know, yeah. we, we wake up to some level... And then we wake up to another level, and there's there's always more to go in really assuming full responsibility for our lives. Well, and one of the things uh, we've talked about in in nearly every practice we we recommend is that one of the ingredients is uh, accountability partners, right? Somebody who can help us say, you know, hey, the way you just showed up. Um, Here's what I saw it creating, and and my job is to go. Wow, thanks for looking out for me, and then I I take action to straighten that out if I if I went awry. Well, I've personally benefited from this for literally decades, 
because I've worked with a, a men's movement, the Mankind Project, 70,000 graduates around the world. And one of the techniques we use, we call the stretch, where in a meeting, if a man you know, decides he's going to commit to do something, that's his stretch. And then he'll ask someone to be his accountability partner, which means that the next time they get together, that guy's going to say, so last week you said you were going to do this, that, the other thing. How did that go? Now, just the fact of knowing that somebody is going to hold you accountable tends to be quite a motivator. Well, absolutely, and that's why we recommend peer coaching in a business environment because if I've partnered up with somebody like that and I'm working through a challenge, I've maybe got a difficult relationship at work that I'm dealing with, if I've got somebody who's following up with me and you know, really challenging me to, to be my best self yes. in those situations, I'm far more likely to... and. Then, and we won't want to get into this because every time we have a conversation about responsibility in a training or coaching session, people a lot of times get confused between responsibility and blame. Right. And we talk about the blame game, which actually could probably be a pretty popular show on TV. Well, as you know, <laughs> once upon a time, myself and my colleagues created a whole pilot for a game called The Blame Game, and one of our writers happened to leak that really wonderful idea to his fellow Saturday Night Live writers. They created several skits for several weeks parodying the yet-to-be-aired show, and it basically killed the deal. Right, and so you blamed him. <laughs> was, he, he leaked the secret. <laughs> that was that was our initial reaction. Was we were yeah. we were creating a, a game called the blame game to point out the the idiocracy you could say of blaming. And the first thing we did was started blaming him. And then fortunately we recognized uh, how absolutely kind of funny that was. Well, and, actually, it could make another good show <laughs> behind the blame game. <laughs> yeah. So so one of the things we we describe, as you know, is that is that we. When blame comes up in the conversation, actually what's happening is it's an attempt for people to hide from responsibility. Right. Pointing the finger, and of course there's three fingers pointing back at yourself. I want to look at the other side of this, though, for a moment, because when we talk about the blame game, this is kind of uh, where we go uh, first off. The other side of it is we're not suggesting anybody gets a free pass. I mean, accountability is shared. I assume responsibility for myself. That doesn't mean ignoring someone else's accountability and, and responsibility. Well, and that sometimes is the toughest job for a leader or a manager or a supervisor is holding other people yeah. accountable and being willing to have the uncomfortable conversation that says, hey, uh, listen, here's what we're looking for. Here's what the outcome was. Uh, can you help me understand what went wrong? Right. Well, just going back to my experience with being held accountable by, by friends, it's interesting to notice how many lessons can be learned when you blow it. I mean, I've been in situations where my accountability buddy will say, so, Will, uh, last week you said you were going to do this, that, and the other thing. How did that go? And I've uh. had to say, oh, you know what, I forgot. <laughs> and because we have an agreement not to blame each other for what happens, where you're mutually agreed to learn from whatever occurs, my buddy would usually say something like, oh, you forgot. Now, is that something that happens a lot in your life? <laughs> and then I get to reflect on, you know, why did I forget? It wasn't a priority. I said it was. 
but it actually wasn't. So there's a lot to be learned, even when things go off the rails. Well, I, I think especially when things yeah. go off the rails. Yeah. Uh, I, and in talking with uh, executives regularly, they they'll, they'll share with me in coaching that they they see themselves and their people learn far more in when something goes wrong if they don't play the blame game right. and right. if they share. Sometimes they'll say mutual responsibility. And so I'll say, well, tell me what you mean by mutual mm-hmm. responsibility. And they say, well, we're, we're all responsible. And I say, and so what does that look like? Right. And what they're kind of thinking in their head as they describe it to me is there's this single responsibility scale. Mm-hmm. And all of us have some portion of that, meaning, you know, we're at 20 and 15 and 30 percent. Nobody's being fully responsible. Yeah. So quantum responsibility, this is kind of that exponential leap is when we introduce the idea that there are multiple scales of responsibility and we each have our own 100 percent for how we show up. And that doesn't take anything away from the other person's. Well, we play with this, you know, in the book, also in the course, you know, posing a scenario where things went off the rails and then inviting uh, the person who's doing the program, reading the book, to assess responsibility in the team. And that's what happens. They divvy it up and come up with 100 as a total. And then the punchline to this, and it's brilliant, is that, well, actually, everybody has their own power scale. Everybody has their own 100% responsibility. Right. And so some of the things we've done to try to help people understand, well, what does 100% look like? So we say, well, you know, you have a mindset of being the owner of what you create in life. But we've also listed some behaviors in our power scale that are kind of on the disempowered or, you know, barely surviving side or on the more empowered thriving side. And so... You know, if we if we just run a few of those, we've just been talking about blame. Then. Right, and, and on the other side of that, obviously, is taking ownership. Right. Uh, you know, the the one side would be making excuses. And the other is what we just spoke about, learning lessons. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I had somebody make an interesting distinction the other day. They said, what's the difference between reasons and excuses? Hmm, that's and a I, great question. Yeah, and I said, well, it depends on what you're using those reasons for. Uh-huh. If you're using those reasons to learn lessons mm-hmm. and to better assess what mm-hmm. what happened, mm-hmm. then that could be really powerful. If you're using those reasons to then make excuses, yeah. right. <laughs> you know. That's like a defensive posture. Right, right. So, uh, you know, another uh, behavior that can show up on the disempowered uh, or surviving side is that I become defensive. Right, defensive and reactive yeah. rather than proactive. Uh, I think this is a huge one. You know, I notice that almost everybody is too busy. And so you introduce the idea of being proactive rather than reactive, and it's like, oh, I don't think I have time for that. But if we're always putting out fires, we're not really making any progress. We're just living in a fire-free zone. <laughs> That's not really accomplishing anything. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I, I had somebody ask the question the other day in a, in a session I was in, and they they were making a point, and they said, you know, a lot of times we talk about being too busy, and they said, what I think that is is a failure to have created a strong enough vision with appropriate priorities mm-hmm. so that we know what right. to say yes to and what to right. say no to. And this is also part of ownership and responsibility, yeah. right? If I have a vision, am I making choices that are actually going to contribute to where I want to head? Or like you said, am I merely in reaction mode? 
Yeah, and a, a friend told me something uh, years ago I've never forgotten. It's so simple, but you hear it and you go, oh, right. He said, whenever you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. <laughs> yeah. And at the time, that was a real revelation because I was kind of in the mode of, well, I can pretty much say yes to everything if I want to. No. You know, there's a subtraction that occurs. I'm over here. I can't also be over there. Well, until we learn how to bilocate and be in multiple places at one <laughs> we're, time. We're working on that. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> so one of the other things that shows up regularly on the uh, kind of, you could say, surviving side of the scale or disempowered side is where we let bias cycles prevail. They, mm-hmm. Our biases, we don't pay attention to them, and we, we act them out, and, and we don't really take ownership for doing anything about them. Well, and this is where uh, skills matter, and we do need these skills if we're in any kind of a leadership position and if we're working with teams, because the momentum can often ride the biases. So let's say in a, a group discussion, you're working on some issue, well, the biases show up as a suppressor of divergent views. Right. And the skilled facilitator, and I've, I've witnessed people doing this, once in a while I've had the, the foresight to do it myself, will interject and say, uh, Brian, you seem to indicate you had a different perspective on this. Could you say more about that? And I've seen that occur where it just brought everything to a standstill because there was so much momentum going in the bias direction. And this was being ignored over here. And when that uh, divergent view was included, the whole picture opened up. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, you know, we've talked last uh, program about inclusion. And, and what you just described, of course, is, is one of those uh, skills and steps involved in being inclusive and seeking intentionally and seeking inclusive views. Uh, we talk about this in a in a blog, actually, that will, is just went up this morning about how really denial can show up when we become so intense about our version of the vision and goal mm-hmm. that we shut down or and aren't willing to seek out opposing views when it, the smartest thing to do would be to talk to people we think will disagree with us and find out why. Well, that's the mature approach. Uh, I think all of us can realize that at times we do get so seduced by what it is we're in love with. As a writer, I notice this with certain phraseology. I just love something I've written. And my wife is is a tremendous truth teller. And I'll show her this. And I'll read the paragraph, you know, the book I'm working <laughs> on, an article. And she'll say, well, I liked everything except that one phrase. I'll say, not that phrase. It's my favorite. But that's got to go because I'm... I have my blinders on. There's something about it that's intoxicated me, and I can't really see it through a reader's eyes, which is the point. I'm, I'm writing for them, not myself. <laughs> right. Well, you know, as we, as we move on on this, on this power scale here, what are the behaviors we can do to really help ourselves actually show up more responsibly? And on one side of the scale is uh, where I become very problem-centric. I, I become mired down in the problems. Uh, I know you introduced kind of this idea to me first that it's, it's kind of a problem-solution paradigm. Right. And then that means that in order for me to justify my existence, I have to keep finding problems. Well, absolutely. The, that old phrase comes to mind, uh, if you think you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> right. And when we're seeking out problems, when we have the identity of a problem solver, we will find problems to solve. It's like editing. You know, when you're editing work, 
if you hired an editor and he said, well, it looks good to me, <laughs> you wouldn't think he was doing his job. So he's got to find some problems to fix. <laughs> right. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's always the case. I mean, if, if we hand something to somebody, we should expect feedback. But the other, the other flip side of that is somebody who's solution centric. Mm-hmm. And I was just uh, coaching somebody the other day and they'd been told by their uh, person up the line from them, Look, I appreciate the fact that you can identify problems. What I want you to bring me are solutions just yeah. to, to, you know, and so look at it from, from a solution-centered viewpoint. Right. Well, I've been in, in uh, conversations where whoever was facilitating would give a guideline, something like, all views are welcome, you can have a contrary opinion, and connect it to something constructive. You know, you can you can be negative about what someone else is suggesting, but give a little thought to an alternative. Yeah, yeah, and that there's. Uh, I'm. Just, I was just thinking to my own reaction of what you just said. I mean, I like that personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just also aware that sometimes somebody is aware of a problem and they don't yet have a solution. Mm-hmm. Right. So I want to give them the freedom to to bring that up as one of the divergent yeah. views. Yeah. Without needing to package it with a solution, I, I get it. I agree. But but part of it is, I mean, we we see this a lot. We can get into it ourselves, where I become uh, mired in the problem mindset and and become not even open to solutions right. that might work. Yeah, and we don't want to infer uh, in any way that we're not taking problems seriously. In fact, someone with a solution-centered mindset is keenly interested in the problems. I mean, they're, they need solving, but they're coming from a different level. One of the terms we use to engage the imagination is what if. You know, use, yeah, yeah. use that phrase to open up the field of possibilities that is, is closed when we're just overwhelmed with the problem itself. Well, and yeah, like what if there was a way of solving this that we haven't even thought of yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, even something as simple as that starts to open up the the mind to, you know, there there are ways to come about this. And it, it, the next couple of things on the on the power scale, on one side is closed minded, the other one is open minded. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, the one is, uh, and this this kind of goes with the closed minded problem centric. As I then focus on pointing out people's mistakes and what's wrong, I, yeah. I'm. And a lot of times, uh, uh, a leader or a manager can can start micromanaging people mm-hmm. to the extent to where they actually thwart their enthusiasm. Yeah, uh, it's called raining on your parade. <laughs> Nobody likes that. You're reminding me of uh, a really hilarious episode with Tony Robbins. You know, the giant uh, motivational speaker. Right, right. My wife and I lived in in Hawaii for years, and we we attended quite a few of his events. And he was making this very point during one of his seminars, and there's like 2,000 people in a big ballroom, and he said, look, start with something positive. When you give somebody feedback, you know, look for something you can say that's encouraging and supportive, and then bring in the, you know, the constructive uh, feedback after. He said, so we're going to try this out now. I'd like to invite anybody in the room here to make a comment, and then I'm going to invite somebody to respond and give us their feedback on the comment. So some woman put up her hand, she made a comment, some guy put up his hand. He was going to respond. He said, well, she didn't really speak loud enough. I couldn't hear her, so she should talk louder. And Tony picked up a bazooka-sized water gun 
and leapt off the stage, ran to this guy, and soaked him from head to foot. <laughs> and he got back on the stage and said, okay, let's try that again. <laughs> now, it's very simple. Start with something positive and then get to the negative. I'm not exaggerating. Three people repeated the mistake. And the last person he had to chase down the aisle out of the ballroom. <laughs> so this is a real problem. We are very much centered in you know critical commentary. And it seems like a simple enough technique just to start with something positive, but the programming runs really deep. It does. And and it's 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 interesting. Uh it, to me that's that's one of the signs of a trance of disempowerment. Right. Right. I, I can't even get my head wrapped around looking for something positive. I, I remember coaching a, a couple of leaders in an organization, and I was espousing this very point that you just made, and you know about catching them doing it right. Yeah. And and uh, he said, "So what you're telling me then is I'm supposed to give people praise and acknowledgement for doing their job?" And I said, "I am saying that, <laughs> yes." And he said, why, why would I do that? I, I, I'll give them praise if they do something extraordinary, but why give them praise for just doing their job? That's what they're paid for. Mm-hmm. I said, well, the simple answer is because it works. Yes. And let me tell you why. That, and I went on to explain the brain science behind positive feedback and how it actually you know, allows the body to, you know, do dopamine shots to the brain, which forge new neural pathways to reinforce that behavior that he just acknowledged, especially if it's authentic acknowledgement. And it, it took it took these two guys a, a while to put it into practice because they were so ensconced yeah. in, in, I will only praise you if you do something that in my estimation is excellent. I've heard the argument against praising people for so-called doing their jobs. Uh, it goes something like, well, they're supposed to be doing it. Why would I praise them? And if I do praise them, then they'll start looking for praise. They'll be expecting it, and they won't do their job unless they get praised. And that's just flatly wrong. Well, the research shows yeah. that, it, that it is wrong. People basically, but that is the argument. I've yeah. heard it a number of times. Well, you notice there's a real mistrust in that whole concept, mm-hmm. right? That people are only going to do their job if I'm watching over them like a hawk. There was actually a whole philosophy in management school year, years back that basically espoused the belief that people are lazy by nature and don't want to work and will only work if we're holding a club over their head, basically. Well, and this gets us into unhealthy competition, which is on our list on the surviving side. And I couldn't help but think of that classic uh, film, Glengarry Glen Ross. <laughs> right, with the right. The team of real estate agents competing for, you know, sales. Right. And just how brutal that was because the low men on the totem pole were going to get fired. Well, and that, that has been uh, a, a popular belief. Uh, you know, the, the main thing what we're encouraging on this is, you know, take responsibility for how you show up. Right. Um, and to know, based on modern brain science that's just really been evolved over the last decade based on live MRIs, we can see that people function at a far, far higher level if we can create a positive reinforcing environment that it both acknowledges their progress, mm-hmm. you know, holds them accountable for doing great, mm-hmm. 
as well as holding them accountable for when things don't go well, right. and then we start to coach them and help them hold themselves accountable. Well, let's talk a little bit about the alternative to unhealthy competition, which is healthy collaboration. Because there's something about competition that can be very healthy. Um, my wife and I were out bowling. We go bowling about once every 10 years. <laughs> and all the women were bowling in one part and all the guys were over here. And my wife wandered over and said, you know, it's really boring over there. We're not even keeping score. And she said, can I play with you guys? And we were competing. We right. definitely wanted to win, but it was a friendly kind of competition. We were really collaborating, supporting each other. She had a lot more fun with us. So there is a place for healthy competition when it's collaboration. Well, and and that's the thing. I mean, and that's why we say, you know, uh, unhealthy competition, because competition can be really useful, especially, like you said, when we're all in it together. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, I think I think collaboration is something that, we very often don't know how to do too well in our culture. So that that is a, uh, a process of how do you create it, and it really goes to one of the last things on the list, creating a win-win-win mm -hmm. environment versus a win-lose environment. Well, I think it's fair to say that we're kind of swimming upstream on this one because you just look at the conventions in our culture. The NBA Finals were just on, and definitely one team won and another team lost. They didn't both win. Well, and, and part of that is, though, um, you know, in sports and in certain competitions, we're not suggesting that everybody gets a trophy. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's, uh, that is just a practical in that type of a situation. What win-win-win what means is that when I examine a situation and how I'm going to show up, I ask myself several questions. Is this going to be truly good for me in the long run? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be good for my people, whether that be my family, my team, mm -hmm. etc.? Is it going to be good for the organization? Is it going to be good for the overall climate of, you know, our industry? In other words, seeing competitors purely as competitors means that I will run them into the ground, yeah. which yeah. sometimes actually backfires on mm -hmm. us terribly. So, mm -hmm. You know, win, win, win. Is there a way that I can act honorably and healthily, healthfully in such a way that it isn't win-lose? Yes, I might come out healthy and, and strong. I might be the industry leader, but I'm not doing it in such a way that I'm creating destructive chaos behind me. Well, it's a very wise viewpoint, actually, because we don't know how things are going to develop. Down the road, we may find that someone, an individual or another organization that was our competitor actually begins to become our collaborator. Well, and that, so if we've built yeah. good faith with them, you know, if, they, if we've treated them fairly and uh, looked out for their welfare as well, that could pay off big dividends down the road. Well, right. We can, we can really help each other out versus having people who are out to get us because we've been so unscrupulous or, or uh, harsh in the way we've treated them. That was my sales mentor when I was in sales early on in my career where he said, we don't have competitors, we have collaborators mm -hmm. in serving the customers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, what a great viewpoint. Yeah, it just it completely revolutionized how we were able to grow as a company because we espoused that view and acted that way. I'm just remembering a story about some department store. I'm not sure which one it was that uh, someone, a customer came in to return an item and actually it wasn't from their store. Right. And they took right. it back. 
Well, they worked out the details with the other store just because they wanted to serve the customer. That's an interesting collaborative model. We had a, I worked in a store when I was going to college that basically had the philosophy, the customer is always right Mm -hmm. and they never question returns. Now we, we had some people in the store, they were actually, it was quite a high end store that were quite wealthy individuals in the community and they would, for example, uh, maybe a woman would come in and say, I want to try this dress at home. She would then wear it out to a party that night and bring it back the next day, <laughs> right? Now, we knew that because some people had actually yeah. seen her wearing it. Yeah. We never questioned it. Uh-huh. We always, you know, catered to it. Now, first of all, they, they did buy a lot of things from us, but they also talked us up to everyone. Uh-huh. Right. I mean... What are they going to say about your store when they're treated like that? And what's that worth? Yeah, yeah. So the whole idea, kind of in a nutshell here as we as we close up, take responsibility for ourselves, for how we show up and for the ripple effect it creates and realize that we each have the opportunity uh, to be more powerful by taking our 100% responsibility scale and making the most of it. Right, and quantum responsibility inspires others, and I'm sure we all know people who've demonstrated the attitude we've been detailing on today's show, and if they've really inspired us, then probably the best thanks we can give them is to join them with that attitude and do the same so we can inspire others. Right, so if you have your own stories about power and responsibility, you can email us at thrivinginbusinessandlife at gmail.com. I'm Christopher Harding. I'm Will Wilkinson. We'll see you again next week.